0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, an ex-Mountie is charged with foreign interference offenses. We look into his BC links. Plus, as Ottawa pushes to meet its 500,000-year immigration target, we look at the growing impact on housing and health care. And we look at how noise from a pickleball court has led to one Chilliwack man going on a hunger strike to protest. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's go to our top story. We learned today William Maker has been charged with foreign interference. The retired Mountie is alleged to have helped identify and intimidate an individual on behalf of the Chinese government. He has been charged with two counts under the Rarely Used Security of Information Act. Uh, Mr. Maker, who is 60, lives in Hong Kong, uh, was picked up Thursday night in Vancouver during a visit to Canada. Now, according to the RCMP's press release, uh, Maker allegedly used his knowledge and his extensive network of... Of contacts in Canada to obtain intelligence or services on behalf uh, or to benefit the People's Republic of China. Here is Inspector David Boudouin, who's head of Montreal's integrated national security team, uh, commenting on the arrest. The criminal allegations that he's currently facing are alleged to have taken place between 2014 and 2019, so seven years after his uh, employment with the RCMP. Now, the RCMP says uh, an investigation into Mr. Maker uh, uh, alleged suspicious activities and was first launched in the fall of 2021. So who is William Maker? Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Maker uh, is John Daly, former host of CKNW's Back on the Beat and former Global News investigative journalist. John, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, it's a real pleasure, Jazz. And man, this is is like a movie script. This is just... Out of the park,
0: uh, it is. You know, you and I have t- been talking throughout the day on this sh- on this story. Tell me a little bit about this gentleman. Who is he?
1: Well, uh, Bill Maker, uh, basically, uh, you know, he started off as a, a young cop in Richmond for the RCMP. Uh, he somehow got his uh, he got his corporal rank, and he went undercover. In uh, 2000 or so, and he became the key undercover agent in a J.F.O., a joint forces operation with the RCMP and the FBI involving Colombian drug lords, money laundering and a Vancouver lawyer named Martin Chambers. Hmm. So uh, and Chambers went down on this thing. And and, uh, apparently uh, Bill Maker was the key witness in the case in Florida. And Chambers got 15 years. Now, there's a wrinkle to this whole thing. It was alleged by Chambers' lawyer that Maker may have had an affair with the judge who sentenced Chambers to 15 years. The news reports at the time indicated that the Florida judge may indeed have had an affair with the very good-looking Maker, but if there was such an affair, it was after Chambers was sentenced for his 15 years. Mm. So anyway, that, that Chambers case catapulted Maker from corporal to inspector, and then he became the head of the RCMP's brand new and British Columbia integrated market enforcement team, I met, which was designed to crack down on phony stock deals and money laundering, which is so obviously something he knew about.
0: So that was sort of the, the RCMP's big shiny ball about we're going to go after white-collar criminals. We, we're yes. a city or a province known for the Vancouver Stock Exchange and cancer yes. cures and everything else we've been peddling for the last 20 or 30 years. We have this notorious reputation. And this guy after this court case uh, in in, in Florida, was was going to be the guy. So his career was on the up, up and up.
1: He got, oh yeah, he was was a rocket. He was an RCMP rocket going to the top. And, you know, in in a way, you could sort of understand it because Maker had actually been a trader, like a floor trader, uh, or a stock trader, rather, in, in London. So he knew money markets and he knew stocks. And so that was, you know, that was a big advantage. That was well before he joined the RCMP. But then he ran as a conservative candidate in Richmond. And apparently uh, didn't follow all of the uh, protocols in terms of you know taking leave of absence from your work and all that kind of stuff. Allegedly, anyway. So and uh, so, so then he left the RCMP.
0: So basically, and I, and I, I know when RCMP officers have run uh, for public office. I, I would have. He got uh,
1: elected. Some of them. Yeah. Like exactly. The one in, uh, no, but
0: But but you but you basically go in and say I'm taking a leave of absence yeah. and I'm going to run. And he, he didn't fo- follow the the proper uh, the protocol. And I think it was for. Well, uh, a conservative nomination, I think in the Vancouver suburb. Yep, yeah, in, in Richmond That's it, right. it says here. Um, That's what, what is interesting here? So, uh, and I recall that time. I think when he was asked, he he said he was in regards to just running this new organization that was going to tackle white collar crime in, in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a guy who's just got this great job. Uh, he, he's got a rock, rocket ship. When regards to his career, he's moving on up, and all of a sudden he's yeah. going to he's going to he run. For the the, he goes for the, fe- the nomination for the federal conservatives, yeah. and, and and I was reading somewhere that he said, "Well, why are you running for office? He's just because I'm I'm frustrated with the inability uh, that we can't sort of persuade Crown Council." to lay charges mm. in several cases so basically you're saying look I can't do my job um yeah, so I'll, because I'll look for another because one I'm going to well, that, that and I'm going to make changes as a, as a public Change servant to finally do
1: Yeah it. I'll get to I'll go to Ottawa and I'll fix the law So you know? I mean he's a go getter you got to give him credit No
0: yeah he's he's moving that's for sure no one's doubting his ambition um I'm curious uh now, so he, he he left the RCMP, yes. and and so did he— Now, you were talking about his, 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 his uh, experience in bonds and all that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, the market. Uh, does anybody know how experienced he truly was? Like, do you know of anybody who can speak to his experience
1: prior to joining do, the RCMP? I do actually know some people, but to be honest with you, they really haven't called me back. I'm waiting for them to get to okay. me, and you may get them on uh, come Monday, I suspect. Yeah, let's see about it. You know, he, he's got a company. He moved to Hong Kong. Okay. And he started a company that basically involves cybersecurity and the recovery of foreign assets for both companies and governments. And he told the uh, uh, Australian uh, Broadcasting Corporation uh, that he, uh, he's the head of this company called EMIDR. Uh, which is involved in getting uh, assets back. He says, as long as the claim is valid and as long as we're doing everything lawfully and properly, I'm a hired gun to help either large corporates or governments to get back what is rightfully theirs. So he's made no, uh, you know, uh, sort, of a, sort of bones about the fact that he, he works for governments. But when, he, when it comes to China's Ministry of Public Security, he was very careful He said, I have a commercial relationship with entities that are in themselves associated in some form or another with policing authorities in China. Uh, But he doesn't say that he is actually working for the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. Now, Jazz, uh, since we spoke earlier, I did speak with one source who says this case hinges on a, a, a document. Hmm. That he has in his possession, or he was alleged to have had in his possession, and you know whether or not he was supposed to have that document or not, which goes to the issue of the conspiracy charge because the conspiracy must involve two people or a person and an entity hmm. there's got to be another person on the side of the equation to to form a conspiracy at law mm-hmm. so Maybe somebody said, "Yeah, I, I slipped in a document or something." Maybe they didn't. Maybe he didn't know that that he wasn't supposed to have it. I mean, he is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, you know, and it's it, you know yourself with these complicated cases how long it can take and whether the crown will give final approval to once you know once they've got some uh, some more disclosure, and, and ha- we'll proceed with the case.
0: Yeah, and, and having lived and worked in China, everything is murky over there because ultimately, mm-hmm. it, if you're a private corporation. Uh, I don't care who you are. We've seen this as high-profile CEOs in China and running tech companies, real estate companies, who have a tendency to go missing. You are ultimately beholden mm-hmm. to the Communist Party of China, and oh, it can like- be through an intermediary. You could have a client who's mm-hmm. hired, hired you to, uh, you know, uh, focus on cybersecurity, but that client may be beholden to a security, uh, a security apparatus somewhere within this giant bureaucracy that is Chinese government. You don't know, and that's yeah. one of the challenges. Is even if you go over there as a consultant. Whatever you may be, uh, ultimately mm-hmm. you're st- you're still uh, at the whim of the Communist Party and 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 uh, the security apparatus, especially yeah. especially in this particular era uh, when it comes to China and the rest and the West.
1: Yeah, it's a very tense time between China and the West. And China, you know, up front they've been operating, uh, you know, Operation Dragon and all sorts of other projects to recover assets which they claim. You know, Chinese nationals who've mm-hmm. left the country and some of whom have come to Canada have uh, improperly uh, taken or placed in, in other, you know, say foreign banks and, and for other foreign places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, was he doing that? Was he actually part of Project Dragon? Who knows? You, you know, did he, if he was, did he know it? Yeah. Did, well, he have, did he have mens rea? You know, this could be a very, very interesting case. Yeah, I, it's going to be. if it ever gets to trial.
0: Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, and we'll certainly uh, follow it uh, throughout the weekend as well. John, thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime, Jazz. Joining me now and not talking about border wages. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> our Jerry Mary Jetson. We'll talk about this later because I think you've got actually a, a very good segment to talk about, oh, segment on stuff we don't talk about, which yes. is very important, which is men's sexual health.
2: Absolutely, conversations about men's sexual health are pretty, pretty scarce. But uh, there's lots of different facets to men's sexual health that I think are worth shedding some light on. So I had a talk with Dr. Neil Pollock, and he is the founder of Pollock Clinics. There's one in Vancouver. There's one in New West, and they provide a whole bunch of men's sexual health services, even more than you'd think.
3: We began, you know, 25 years ago doing circumcisions and vasectomies. We sort of developed our own approach to carrying out a no scalpel, no needle vasectomy that is virtually bloodless, virtually painless, and the same for circumcision in that we really worked hard at coming up with a technique that's virtually bloodless, virtually painless, and we do circumcision all the way from newborn to infants, children, teens, and adults. And then over the last five years, we started getting deeper into men's sexual health. So we came up with interesting and innovative protocols to treat some very common conditions. Uh, One is erectile dysfunction. About 50% of men over 40 have difficulties getting and or maintaining an erection. We've come up with some very interesting and effective protocols to help men who are suffering from erectile dysfunction. As well, we treat Peyronie's disease. We deal with ejaculatory problems. We also moved on to now a new area, testosterone hormone assessment and replacement therapy. About uh, one in Four men over the age of 40 have some issues with their testosterone levels. We've developed a clinically advanced therapy program to replace and replenish and maintain testosterone levels while we minimize side effects. And we're getting a terrific response from the community and from physicians. As well, my um, other colleague, Dr. Jack Chang, is spearheading a penile augmentation program at Poly Clinics using dermal fillers. The other element that we brought in over the last couple of years was Platelet rich plasma hair restoration that's really the scope of what we're working on now. The results that we're getting and the patient satisfaction has just been uh, tremendous.
2: What strikes me is um, I, I had no idea that there was such innovation and that's probably because we don't really talk about men's sexual health, broadly speaking. I can only imagine that it's daunting to even begin to look for appropriate sexual health care for some of these things as a man. So how does someone go about accessing these services that you provide? Like, what are the steps to take?
3: It's a great question and a great point, Jerry. And I think that, you know, you're right that with technological advances, with increased awareness and understanding of the etiology, the causes of some of these conditions, that there are new therapeutic options. And to, to your question on how do people access the services, people don't need to worry about any kind of anxiety coming to see us Because this is super common. So, uh, you know, coming to our website at paulatclinics.com, calling our office, we make a point of having very quick access. A big priority for us, considering the stress people get in the public system to get medical help, a key priority for us is to not have people waiting days, weeks, months and we make a special effort to see people very quickly, and they can feel free to speak to us about the whole range of different issues. You know, whatever is troubling them, we're here to help them, and we see it and do it all day long for literally thousands of patients a year.
4: Well,
2: that's excellent. Thank you. Actually, yeah, I kind of preempted my my last question here, which was if you were going to address somebody who was on the fence about booking a consultation because maybe he's embarrassed or maybe he's up against societal expectations to like take it on the chin and just kind of deal with it if there's something about your sexual health that you are dissatisfied with, you know, well, it's just a lot in life. Be a man. What would you then say to ease his mind?
3: Yeah, I would say that all these type of sexual issues and concerns for men are just so common and that nobody should suffer alone and silently and that you have an opportunity to get assessed and very likely get help. So come speak to us and we'd be pleased to be able to um, discuss with you what options are appropriate for
0: you to consider. I get the sense Dr. Pollock is very passionate about men's health as well. He, he, just, he just comes across when you hear him.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I feel, and also, like I mean, who am I to talk? But I, I even sort of felt comforted by his assurance that, like, no, you can come in. It's all very common, and they do a full, like, it's very, oh, he used a word, multimodal treatment. So, yeah, oh, okay. addressing all of the causes of any sort of, if anything is affecting your sexual health or your self-esteem or whatever, they'll, they'll take good care of
0: you. Excellent. Now, uh, before you go, I I know uh, you were a traffic reporter. Yes, I was. So you, you know the borders well, you know the ferries well, you know our bridges well. Mm-hmm. You've covered this every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were a betting person, I'm not saying you were, but <laughs> just say you were, because you have you can bet until tomorrow <laughs> at midnight. Yeah. Uh, today, I think the border, uh, the highest, the, 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 the longest wait mm-hmm. was two and a half hours I think. Okay. So if, if you were going to bet ten bucks uh, and you have until tomorrow, so number one, uh, when do you think the busy times would be tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and would you bet more than three hours in regards to the lineup or under?
2: Okay, I'm going to say by 11.45 in the morning. I'm going to be risky, and I would totally say over three hours because you cannot – uh uh, uh th- just don't underestimate maybe some folks who don't think it's gonna be that bad there's a lot of people who want to go and they think it's not going to be that bad yeah. and then and then they make it that bad so I don't know if this if today is any indication of tomorrow people have a whole free day yeah I don't know I think it might be
0: over over three hours just so before if, noon so if you're gonna bet you, yeah. it would be over three hours yeah. Man, that is depressing. Because even if you got Nexus passes, you can't even get near the Nexus Lane for three hours. Wow! So if you're betting ten bucks, you're betting over three hours. Yep, I think so. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. Well, Tony Bennett, the smooth singer who had an enduring hit with "I Left My Heart in San Francisco." and remained perpetually cool enough to win over a younger generation of fans well into the 21st century. Died today. Mr. Bennett was 96. He died at his home in New York City. Frank Sinatra uh, called the former singer uh, the best singer in the business after he became a star in the 1950s. Mr. Bennett went on to win 20 Grammy Awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's a retrospective of some of the work from Tony Bennett.
1: This next gentleman is a showstopper, a
0: wonderfully vital performer. Here he is, Tony Bennett. Mr. Tony Bennett. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tony Bennett.
2: Because of
4: you, there's a song in my heart. I know I'd go from rags to riches. Anything goes Life, And we still can see the velvet Smile, though your heart is aching Smile, even though it's breaking A a broken tree That's why the lady is a tramp and the way you look tonight.
0: When you listen to all of that, you realize why they call him timeless and stylist. Uh, he is uh, truly one of the great ones, uh, the eminent Tony Bennett. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, Tony Bennett's legacy is Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator at that ericalper.com. Eric, thank you for joining us.
5: Oh, thank you very much for having me. Right uh a- What an amazing group of songs that was. I think anybody would be proud just to have one of them. Tony Bennett had, oh, a few dozen.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. What do you think his broader legacy is?
5: Um, You know, the amazing thing about Tony Bennett, and and you kind of touched on it in the intro, Mm -hmm. is that um, there's not a lot of artists out there that have had a six or seven decade career, um, but stayed Absolutely uber cool throughout all of it. And mostly because it, doesn't, it didn't really matter what was going on with music around him. He never went punk. He never went really pop current. Um, he never went disco or hard rock or metal just for the sake of trying to build an audience. He stayed pretty smooth. He stayed pretty traditional. Um, pop and jazz, he loved the Hollywood show tunes and Broadway's and, and standard pop coming from Tin Pan Alley songwriting back in the 1920s and 30s um, and he never really strayed from that and mm. even though that his career certainly had his ups and downs like every other career Um you know, the biggest dip of his career in the late 1970s, early 80s, when he developed a drug habit and he was in um, in debt to the IRS, he turned to his son, Danny, and said, I need help. I got to figure out what to do. I don't know if my audience is there. I don't know even if I have an audience. And Danny kind of thought and thought and thought and worked a whole bunch of things. But one of the genius things he did, which he called MTV, and said, I know that you got the show Unplugged. Um, We'd like to see if you'd be interested in having Tony Bennett on there. And MTV's Unplugged, not only one album of the year, but also for Pop Vocal, bringing him to an entirely new audience that at the time, MTV, don't forget, was just playing nothing but Nirvana, Soundgarden, Britney Spears, and Thinking Backstreet Boys. So for him to achieve that, is still astonishing to me.
0: I mean, that is a very good point that you make at the end there in the sense that just to pick up the phone and have your son do so, but to be able to want to want to do that and then to be able to relate to a younger audience and make sure they can relate to the music as well is is an incredible accomplishment.
5: I think that if you put your faith in the songs and you, you're an artist and you put your faith in the songwriters, and especially when Tony came up In the same era as Frank Sinatra, where you sung the songs. The songwriters did their job. And um, if you picked right, if you pick those special songs that mean something to somebody in, oh, I don't know, San Francisco, as opposed to halfway around the world in Japan, and still have it mean something to the people in Japan, you've hit on a really good mark. And that's exactly why I Left My Heart in San Francisco and The Way You Look Tonight and Fly Me to the Moon are timeless classics. It's not It's not about San Francisco. It's really about that human experience of, of longing for something and having to leave somebody or someplace to, you know, that you don't want to. And Fly Me to the Moon isn't about the moon or the planet. It's It's about dreams mm-hmm. and hopes. And we all have that. And that's why Tony was able to succeed is he picked these songs that, which is so meaningful, not only to him, but he just had maybe an inkling that other people would want to feel it too.
0: That's the interesting part. You know, in an era of uh, instant music, in an era of streaming, um, or in an era of hip-hop, different types of music, global music, that that type of music that he sang, mix of jazz, whatever you want to call
5: it, still endures today. What do you think that is? It's class. It's yeah. just, it, you look at Tony Bennett in that suit, And in the impeccable hairstyle, and he looked just as good singing those songs um, when he was sad and when he was singing a happy song or or a sad lyric or a happy lyric, mostly in the same song. And you look at him in 1940 and 1950, and he looked just as good as when he was singing with Lady Gaga. And Amy Winehouse, just class that people wanted to see him succeed. They loved hanging out with him and they loved seeing him in concert. And, you know, he treated this country of Canada really, really well. And we loved him back. You know, every tour he did, he made sure that he stopped in Vancouver and Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, never really never forgot. I mean, he he did duets with Katie Lang and Michael Bublé. He thought this country was pretty special.
0: No, absolutely he did. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Have yourself a wonderful weekend.
5: You too. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon.
0: Well, usually the term music and task force don't go together, but in the case of Vancouver City Hall, they do. The city is looking to put together its inaugural music task force. Now, what will the task force look to accomplish? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Sadi Dewar, music officer for the city of Vancouver. Sadi, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. So explain this to me, and I, I saw this come about my desk, and I saw Vancouver's inaugural music task force. When I hear task force, I think uh, serious government stuff, usually, that's what they're looking at, but I never <laughs> see that, and music used in the same sentence. So explain how this would all work.
6: Yeah, it's funny, we were actually wondering what to call it for a while, and <laughs> folks like the, the sound of task force, it gives it a little bit of teeth, um, so... If you're not aware, back in 2019, uh, the City of Vancouver adopted the Vancouver Music Strategy. It's a you know a wide-reaching framework for how we can support and grow music in the city and better you know uh, contribute to a healthy, holistic mu- music ecosystem. The report kind of identified that there are there's a groundswell of amazing musical talent in the city, and we have pretty good industry infrastructure for uh, developing and supporting talent, but there was a, a mismatch in, in those two elements communicating with each other. Um, you know, through the widespread community engagement uh, during that period, a lot of folks in the community felt that their voices weren't heard, that they, were, they didn't have equal access to opportunities, and the people working... Industry, whether it's in nonprofits or commercial enterprises and people working for the city, realized that there was a need to facilitate communication across the sector. Mm-hmm. So, the second recommendation out of the Vancouver Music Strategy was to develop a music task force that would bring in folks from the city government, folks from different um, nonprofits and organizations that exist to support music, and individual artists and musicians from our music community.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious. Uh Music is at its core; it's a it's a creative process. It's about writing about what you feel, what has impacted your life. Uh, it's got everything everything that is about music and creating, is the exact opposite of government or uh, the private <laughs> sector, for that matter. And I don't mean that uh, in, a, in a in a in a condescending way. I just mean they're just opposites in in many ways. Um, how do you go about supporting that music? Is it a question of making venues open to artists? Will it be about uh, providing dollars that perhaps could subsidize artists? How do you see building that longer-term viability and, and uh, as it said in the report uh, or in the release, resiliency?
6: Yeah, so, I mean, first off, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. I work in the city, um, but I am first and foremost a musician and have been a professional uh, performing and recording artist in Vancouver for the last fifteen years. I, you know, I what I love about music is its ability to um, bring those voices to the surface. It, it's a it's a place where people can express themselves, connect to each other, um, and really just you know explore their identities and cultures in a beautiful and positive way. And yeah, I totally agree that. Traditionally speaking, government work doesn't really align with that, but, you know, if we're being realistic the government, all levels of government regularly make decisions that have an impact on the lives of peoples of all communities, and music is no different. So, the Vancouver Music Strategy, you know, highlighted some of the ways in which uh, both government and local industry are not acting in as supportive of a way as they possibly could. So... While it's you know, I can't sit here and tell you exactly what the task force will accomplish because we don't know who all will be participating in those uh, in those conversations just yet. Mm-hmm. But there are people with dollars. Right? You know, Music BC, Creative BC. These ex- these organizations exist to fo- uh, foster and support talent of all types, and there are people with you know. Uh, within the city who act in a regulatory capacity or who steward development in the city, which has an impact on where artists can perform, where they can live, where they can practice and and create. Um, And, you know, the, the idea is to get all these people in a room and to align on priorities and see what opportunities currently exist and where we should focus our efforts in the
0: future. Is there a particular city in North America that does this well? in regards to government involvement, a task force, and setting priorities and policies that, ha- that, that do help artists to create and help the sort of vibrancy and resilience, uh, resiliency of a city. Do you like any particular program or city program in North America that does it well?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a few examples of cities that do it well, just because historically and culturally, music has been at the heart of the city. Um, but I think a more immediate kind of, uh, analog to our experience here is Toronto
4: mm-hmm.
6: and, you know, Toronto is a big city It is facing tremendous challenges similar to those in Vancouver. Um, but they do, they had a music strategy a music office and a music task force is called the Toronto music advisory committee TMAC.
4: Mm-hmm. And
6: they've been able to, you know, accomplish a number of big regulatory changes, um, they've been able to leverage city money to stimulate the local economy and to support local music businesses in the city there. I think, you know, the profile of the city's music scene and music industry is bigger than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think there's a lot to learn from the example they've set there, their music officer, Mike Tanner, um, is, you know, he's been at it for quite some time now, seven or eight years. And I, yeah, I really look to him for a lot of, uh, yeah, just ideas and, and on how to kind of balance these, these forces of the music and creative community and the, the government bureaucracy side of
4: things. Mm-hmm.
0: And just to confirm here, the deadline for applications for the Vancouver Music Task Force is August 25th at 5 p.m. And if you want more information, uh, you can just visit the Vancouver Music Strategy. Is that correct? That
6: is correct. It's all over the city's socials as well, or you can look at the Vancouver Music Strategy online. There will be links for how to apply um, and all the additional information about what it looks like to participate.
0: Well, you know what? We always talk about no fun city, and, and I know the mayor and council have been quite uh, focused on, uh, you know, uh, making the city into a fun city. And as the mayor said, bring some of our swagger back. Uh, this is before he shot gun kind of beer. So it's all part and parcel of that bigger issue of <laughs> bringing fun back. So I uh, look forward to chatting with you again once uh, this work force is up, this task force is up, and uh, comes back with some of its findings as well. Sadie, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Between Taylor Swift's Eras Tour and Toronto Blue Jays taking on the Seattle Mariners in a three-game series this weekend, British Columbians are flocking to Seattle. Uh, there was a over two-hour wait at the border. I think at one point it hit two and a half hours. I think that was the peak, uh, leaving uh, many uh, British Columbians, of course, just waiting patiently. Take a listen to Hannah and Charlotte, two sisters who were waiting at the border today.
7: At least an hour.
2: Yeah. We were not expecting it. We thought we were going to go early and beat the rush, but apparently
8: uh, the rush beat us. So here we are.
0: Here we are. The rush beat us. Well, I I think tomorrow, uh, I was just talking to Jerry Mary Judson, and uh, she used to work in traffic uh, prior to joining the show, and she uh, was uh, telling me that... uh, You know, based on her assessment, uh, she believes that uh, tomorrow we may even see um, uh, longer waits, uh, potentially up to three hours. Well, uh, the BC Lottery Corporation, uh, through playnow.com, is offering the chance to bet on just how long that wait will be. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the odds uh, is Matt Lee, Senior Communications Specialist for the BC Lottery Corporation. Matt, thank you for joining us.
9: Thanks for having me, Jazz. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So, uh, what? at what point did the BC Lottery Corporation say, you know, let's put this out uh, in a press release where British Columbians can actually bet uh, on the wait times at the Peace Arch border?
9: Well, let's put it this way. I've got co-workers going down to the states this weekend. I've got <laughs> friends going down to the states for the Blue Jays this weekend. It seems like everybody's going down to the border except me to have a great time. I am personally not going to endure a potentially three-hour wait, but I know that there are a lot of Taylor Swift fans and a lot of Toronto Blue Jays fans that will, so... I mean, I saw a time lapse of the merchandise line at Lumenfield for the Taylor Swift concert jazz. And my mind was blown. It was the merchandise line a day before the concert. So I don't even envy the folks who are heading down on the border crossing tomorrow because God only knows how long that line is going to be.
0: Yeah, and, and if you have to remind yourself, uh, you know, some people may be going to both concerts and you got three three games at the Blue Jays uh, as well. So I just want to confirm when it comes to single-game betting here, uh, I know it's been legalized and you and I have talked about this uh, mm-hmm. many a time. But for this particular bet, uh, you're basically saying that uh, you can bet on the wait time. So uh, either the over-under. So it can be either under 179.5 minutes or just just slightly under three hours or over three hours, right?
9: That's correct. And right now the odds are favoring it being under the 179.5 minutes very slightly. So you get a little bit more money if you successfully place an over 179.5-minute bet.
0: So uh, so if I were to wager $10, what would you get?
9: $10 on the over three hours would be paying out a total of $20. $10 on the under would be paying out a total of $17.10. Uh,
0: how often do you do these types of novelty bets? Is, is it just part of the sort of the thinking now at, at BCLC beyond just betting on a particular hockey game or a, or, or a soccer game?
9: Well, let's put it this way. I mean, we're, we're BC's local sportsbook. We're, we're proudly saying that we're from British Columbia. And I think the, the really good thing about this particular bet is that it's just hyper-local. You know, we've got every single British Columbian seemingly wanting to head down south of the border this weekend. And we're thinking about all the people who are going to be waiting in that line. And you know what? I, I would say you're not a true British Columbian until you've endured a lengthy wait at a border crossing. So we try to think about these these fun uh, little things that are being discussed at the water cooler. Uh-huh. And, and, again, everyone and their dog seems to be heading down south of the border this weekend. So we thought to ourselves, why don't we have a little bit of fun with this? You know, maybe if you're sitting at the Peace Arch this weekend, you're looking at a three-hour wait, potentially. Maybe you're heading on to PlayNow.com just to at least maybe say, I'm going to have a little bit of fun if I'm going to sit in this line, in this lineup for a long time. So, uh, I mean, for us, we, we're really just trying to focus on creating bets that British Columbians will find interesting. And I think that this is a really good example of it. And it's a fun one, really.
0: What kind of other non-sports uh, betting opportunities have uh, have uh, you folks over at BL- BCLC uh, uh, provided?
9: Yeah, you know, you look at our novelty section, we've got everything on current affairs. Uh, you're able to bet on who will be the next Pope time person of the year. Uh, for the longest time we've had, who will be the next James Bond? And I know that one is still a little bit up in the air. And that one's seen. Quite a bit of action on PlayNow.com, too. You think about the Oscars, the biggest award show. That gets a lot of hype every year on PlayNow.com. And you know what? I don't want to look too far ahead, but we're just over a year out from the 2024 U.S. presidential election. And the 2020 U.S. presidential election was the largest betting event in PlayNow.com history. So there's just so much stuff happening uh, away from the sports side of things that PlayNow.com players are interested in, and uh, I really like that we were able to bring this local one to uh, PlayNow.com today. So,
0: so just to clarify, when you say that uh, the the 2020 election was the biggest, that's non-sporting election. Not non-sporting? No, this was
9: this was bigger than any Super Bowl. Any Stanley Cup final, we're talking the biggest single event that was ever bet on it on inplaynow.com. I believe it was more than $2 million that was placed in total on so, the U.S. election in 2020.
0: So Trump versus Biden, $2 million in bets here in British Columbia?
9: Yeah, if you can believe it. And you know what, we, you think about 2024, Jazz, it, it could be just as electric, uh, if you look at the candidates we're looking at for 2024 so uh you know check back with me in a couple months time because we could probably have a good conversation about how much we're seeing a year out from the 2024 election
4: uh,
0: out of curiosity uh, what is the number one sport one two sport for um for gambling just to, i'm curious is it hockey we're a hockey nation does that uh, still e- is that number one at all or no
9: Generally, it's actually been the NFL, if you can believe it. And, you know, the NFL season is uh, about a month or two away already. And so we're getting ready for another busy NFL season. But, you know, the NHL is obviously right there behind us. There's no shortage of hockey fans here in B.C. Uh, And then you've got the NBA. Uh, There's a a lot of people that would love to see the Vancouver Grizzlies come back to Vancouver because there's a a lot of Vancouver Grizzlies and NBA fans here. So, um, you know, you look at those big three sports, even the Major League Baseball. You talk about the Blue Jays and Seattle games this weekend there will probably be a lot of betting action on those games as well
0: oh there you go thank you so much matt thanks Jazz. thanks for having me be a beautiful weekend. We're talking about uh, Taylor Swift uh, with uh, two concerts in uh, Seattle. Of course, British Columbia's heading down across the border to also watch the Blue Jays. We've got a three-game series against Seattle. We forget other parts of the world that are going through or that have been going through an incredible challenge. Ukraine, of course, comes to mind right away. Significant amount of people uh, in that country uh, that have fled that region eight million refugees from ukraine alone many of them come to british columbia as well but the help that that country needs uh, is uh, first and foremost on the front lines as well uh, our next guest got back from ukraine in april and she plans to go back very soon dr tracy parnell is a doctor trained in emergency medicine and disaster management and she joins us now uh, dr parnell thank you for speaking to us today Thank you very much for having me. So first and foremost, uh, you got back in April, you're going again. What drives you to do this?
8: I think um, a lot of it has to do with the overwhelming need that is there. Um, the catastrophic wounds, the the injured, the ill patients who can't get out of the, the firing zone. Um, the overwhelming need and, and the passion that these people have to to fight for freedom. Um, you know, they're they're adamant that this is a fight for freedom that you and I just take for granted, and they're prepared to to die to ensure that their children and grandchildren have have freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a powerful, powerful motivator.
0: When, when did you go on your first trip to Ukraine?
8: My first trip was in April last year, shortly after um, the war started at the end of February. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a friend, um, a person that I worked with, I didn't actually hadn't met her. And her husband was a general surgeon and they were trying to figure out how to train gynecologists to put in chest tubes. And I've done a lot of trauma training over the years. So I offered to go. And by the time I got there, she would connected me with this whole community of people on the Eastern Front that were in desperate need of, of help. And I just keep going back.
0: <laughs> have you uh, been to, a, did, did you prior to that go to a war zone prior to that?
8: No, I have a military background, but it was um, more training and administration and practice and exercises, not um, active war zones. But it's certainly an environment that I feel fairly comfortable in with my training and background.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what does a, an average day, which is kind of hard to say average day, but what does a day look like yeah. for you when you are there on the front lines?
5: It,
8: it, you know, every day is absolutely different. It depends on sort of what, um, what role I'm in at that time. So it can be that we're doing training um, with doctors and, and medical staff. Um, It can also be that we're doing mentoring. So if we're doing mentoring, then we're often either in an ambulance or a stabilization point, which is sort of like a a mini resuscitation area, an emergency department set up in goodness knows where. Um, And uh, it starts really, really early in the morning, often goes, you know, usually 24 hours on, then 12 hours off, well, less than 12 hours, and then another 24 hours it it's it's very 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 intense. Oh, I <laughs> can imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah. Um yeah. You,
0: you know when 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 this war first started there was significant uh coverage interest um uh,
5: yeah.
0: uh, you know and as the weeks and months progress as there is a tendency in this and I I mean I used to cover the war in Afghanistan be in and out of Afghanistan okay. quite a bit. And yeah. it's always sometimes frustrating when you come back uh, because, yeah. you know, Canadians go about their lives. News and what they yeah. hear from another part of the world is that it's in their subconscious, but it's not front and center. Uh, right. When you come back, do you sense mm-hmm. that when you deal with your, 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 your uh, fellow British Columbians? Yeah. And A, does it make you angry? Or I mean, how do you feel? I mean, I shouldn't say angry, but how do you feel?
8: You know what? I really have to put a a different mindset on when I when I come back because it's like you know these people here don't have that exposure. They haven't had that one on one experience of being in a you know a war zone where people are dying, people are being horrifically wounded, where there's a a, a, you know an awful uh, aggressor that is is just wiping people's lives out, and, and we're talking by hundreds and thousands. And you know, if you don't have that personal experience, I think it's really easy to just get into the routine. Um, so I try not to get frustrated with it, but I, I also really want to encourage people to to spend a little bit of more a little bit more time and no one understand what's happening, because in my opinion, what's happening there, um, you know, really could have a much more substantial impact on us in the future. At least if you look back in history, it, you know prior to World War II, the events happening in the 1930s are, are really quite mirroring what's happening in, in Eastern Europe right now. And that's very terrifying uh, to me. And I hope that, you know, we kind of wake up and, and continue to do our part and support Ukraine, um, because it's a battle that, that we really, all of us, can't afford
0: to have lost based on your first trip and your last trip uh, how are the people holding up not the ones that are injured but the ones that are still living living their day-to-day lives still fighting uh, what's right. their their sort of demeanor their mindset what do you are they still there to fight are they still uh, optimistic
8: i don't i don't know if optimistic is is the right word are they determined absolutely I mean, they don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. They really don't. You know, having um, a settlement with Russia just really isn't an option if they really want to have freedom. And um, so they're determined, they're passionate and, you know, they're motivated by things that we've forgotten about. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, ancestors talking about, um, you know, great-grandparents, you know, sort of passing on, we fought for freedom. It really doesn't mean anything to us today, um, you know even those of us who served in the in the military capacity, it doesn't really mean anything mm-hmm. when you go there. and I mean, you've been in you've been in a war zone, you you understand this. you you look at people, and these people are fighting for their very existence for for freedoms that mm-hmm. we really just take for granted. and um yeah, it, it it makes me so much more grateful for what we have here, so much more willing to to fight for the values that we have here in Western society, a free society, mm-hmm. um, and to do everything I can to support them in, in trying to win this battle so that they can transform their society into one that respects freedom.
0: Is there uh, a particular uh, organization or uh, funding mechanism if people want to support you or your organization for the work that you do? Uh, where can they go?
8: Um, well, we we finally gave in. So, I I mean, I'm a, a doctor. I have two nurse colleagues, one from California, one from um, Gassay, that we sort of connect when we get there. We're not a formal organization. We're just doing our best. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have started a uh, GoFundMe campaign for a bunch of equipment and training um, stuff that we can't afford to buy on our own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's under Medic Team for the number Ukraine. Um, and people are being super generous and we really, really appreciate it. And it focuses not only on trauma, but also most of us do virtual clinics when we're back in Canada. So overnight we will um, you know, see patients through a telehealth um, network, but we don't have you know, virtual stethoscopes and stuff, that we really need to be able to, to care for those patients who are stuck in, in a war zone and just can't leave. Um, we, when we were there, it's easy, but when we're far away, it's it's difficult. So we're raising funds to try and um, help both those circumstances as traumatically wounded as well as those who are stuck in the war zone
0: yeah so once again that's the gofundme page and it's medic m-e-d-i-c medic team Four, the number four ukraine medic team for ukraine uh, if you yep. wish to donate at the gofundme page uh dr parnell thank you so much for your time today
8: thank you very much i greatly appreciate you and uh, and your listeners support it means a lot to me and i know it means a lot to the the people in ukraine and my my colleagues as well
0: Welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot about immigration. There's been a great concern recently about the fact that we're having 500,000 people moving to Canada by uh, 2025. Our immigration levels have been increasing significantly. And with that, people's concerns over housing, access to health care, congestion and traffic. Joining me now to discuss the issue uh, is David Coletto, who's chair and CEO of Abacus Data. David, thank you for joining
10: us today. My pleasure. Great to be here.
0: So what convinced you to write uh, an article on this? Was it your own research, or is it more anecdotal, just meeting friends, family, acquaintances, where you were hearing that phrase, I'm pro-immigration, but?
10: Well, I think it was a mix of a few things. One is, I was hearing I was hearing that uh, a few times, and it was the first time that I can remember, that, at least in Canada, that I heard somebody say, you know, start a... A thought with with that uh, with that clause at the front end, mm-hmm. and then you know, the all the, the the focus on Canada's population crossing 40 million, and and a lot of the news that, that we were seeing coming about, you know, just how many new immigrants we were welcoming to the country had me, you know, as as a public opinion researcher, I have that, that that advantage of being able to ask people questions. So it had me thinking about, you know, this 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 idea that that Canadians in Canada are um, are somehow immune, that we are immune to kind of some of the anti-immigration forces that we've seen in other parts of the world. And so, hey, I'm a pollster. I, I went in and I asked a, a bunch of questions to try to understand what, what people are thinking today.
0: Now, generally, there's been a consensus, whether it's federal liberal, uh, federal conservative, federal New Democrat, generally people at that level, as elected officials and and the business community, uh, have been, generally agreed, look, we need to have a robust uh, type of immigration in this country in the 90s it was about 200,000 immigrants and solely it has been inching up under whether it's Mr. Crechim, Mr. Harper or under Mr. Trudeau but it's but it's significantly increasing over the last few years um, is this something that can be sustained when it comes to public opinion uh, because we're hitting 500,000 in 2025 yeah. or do you think we're hitting a wall here
10: Well I think I think it can be sustained but it it requires you know, action on some of the, the areas where people are feeling, I think, friction, right? And in and, and our research, you know, the two areas where people feel that immigrants are having the, the biggest negative impact is on housing prices and, and the cost of living relative to housing and health care, right? And and the perception that our system just can't meet the, the needs. And if we're going to continue to bring in half a million new people, how, how on earth are we going to, you know, care for everybody and find a roof? Uh, over their heads. And so I think, you know, we've had Canada's grown, um, as you said, consistently for decades, but it's the scale of growth at the same time that I think for many people, they feel, you know, our public services haven't been uh, kept up, our infrastructure hasn't been invested in. And so as people experience these frustrations in their day to day lives, it creates an opportunity for them to say, well, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. You know, in my heart of hearts, I think immigration is good. I'm not opposed to immigrants. It's not a xenophobic kind of response. Um, it's increasingly, for many, a response that, that says, are we ready for it? Can we handle, you know, the increase in population? Mm-hmm. And, you know, economists say we need to, we need immigrants because we're not replacing our population. Our birth rate's very low. We're an aging population. And so, you know, demographically, we, we need to, to grow our population and welcome new people. But I worry um, that that... that consensus you described at the elite kind of political level uh, may be disrupted as Mm -hmm. the political market, as public opinion shifts towards a place where people say, I don't, not that I don't want any immigrants, Mm -hmm. but maybe we can have a debate about how many we're letting into the country because I'm worried about the impact it's having on the things I rely on every day.
0: Mm -hmm. And and I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, I guess the other question that has to be asked is, 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 is it fair uh, to say we have housing and affordability challenges, we have challenges with health care, and somehow put the onus uh, fairly or unfairly on 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 immigrants. What I mean by that is you know, we uh, peaked building housing in this country in the early 1970s. The federal government got out of the housing business, provincial governments to a certain degree, affordable housing. And I think they're now waking up to it in the last little while in major cities like Toronto and Vancouver. But that's not the immigrants' fault. It certainly is causing short-term challenges, and I I would agree with that. And in the healthcare situation, we've had an ongoing debate about, we all support a one-payer, single-payer healthcare system. But you know, many Canadians would argue we need more dynamism in it, um, you know, to, to to drive innovation. That we're not we're not finding a place for the private sector within a single payer system. Now that can be debated, and I don't and I don't always support all of that. But that can be debated, and that's fine. But it seems like those systems, whether it's our cost of living or housing, sorry, and healthcare, we haven't been really focused on both of them in a meaningful way to make real change. And so, when these immigrants come, who we need with a, with a, who are of a working age population, we kind of throw this at them and say, "Look, we got these problems, and it's because of you folks." And yeah, it's not yeah. fair, though, is it? Or maybe I'm wrong.
10: But, and, I, and I and I think you know, the, the, I'm not saying that that the immigrants are to blame for these problems. I actually think, if you ask me personally, my view is it's a failure of leadership um, of all three levels of government to coordinate. Right? If the federal government is is responsible for immigration levels. You know, we know the provinces are responsible for largely for, for, for health care and the municipalities and provinces are re- responsible for housing. Um, you know, we should have been planning for this. Like we knew for, for decades that Canada's population was aging, that we weren't replacing, you know, we weren't having enough babies. And so this is not a new problem. <laughs> this is not a new, right? So that I think is, but, but the response is, the reaction, and we've seen it in other countries like the UK and the United States and Australia, where immigration levels rise you do get this anxiety because people are perceiving that the things that they have come to expect and, and the pressures they're feeling are just going to be made worse. Right. And it's not because of immigrants, but it's because our population is growing. And, and so I think, I think, and so I put focus on it, not that, you know, we want to create a backlash against immigration, but it's almost a warning to our political leaders that if we don't get this right, Mm -hmm. right, that, that consensus, that that Canada has had and and that I think has made us unique in the world as a welcoming, tolerant, you know, inclusive place might be at risk. It doesn't mean it will be, but Mm -hmm. if we don't invest in healthcare, if we don't figure out how to, to improve it, um, and and we aren't building as many homes as we possibly can, then the housing crisis is going to only get worse. And, and people's confidence in the healthcare system, especially as our population ages, is going to put further political pressure on people to respond. and, as somebody who who observes and follows politics globally and then here in Canada really closely, if there's an opportunity, if public opinion creates the opportunity for a political leader to take advantage of something, they typically do. And so we shouldn't take for granted that all three major federal parties agree that immigration is a good thing, or at least the level of immigration we've we've had over the last number of years is a good thing. And and we should start having this conversation. It's almost as if, you know, we can't debate immigration because it's this 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 taboo subject um but but we have to like demographics as people say is destiny and we need to figure out as a country that's, that's getting older very fast how we're going to keep economic growth and, and forward i will say in the survey work that we're doing canadians also recognize while you know a growing population is putting pressure on things like housing and health care that more immigrants is actually going to be good for the economy it's going to be you know, good for attracting new business, it's good for dealing with labor shortages that might exist. So there's there's certainly a, a perception and understanding that there's a lot of upside mm-hmm. to, to the, the level of immigration we have, but it's also dealing with those negatives that I think become really important.
0: No, I, I think you're absolutely right, and it's it's not like it's xenophobia. I mean, I've heard this from immigrants who say, wait a minute, I'm pro-immigrant, I am an immigrant, uh, but I'm concerned as well, letting too many people come in, and, and, and in regards to the ability to handle all of it when it comes to our housing and health care system. But I think you're absolutely right, David. This is a a major challenge for all parties, all political leaders. And it doesn't take much for uh, one political party to take advantage of it because that underlying concern is fundamentally there in regards to our um, uh, institutions to handle uh, and absorb so many people moving uh, to this country, that's for sure. David, thank you so much for your time today. I
10: really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Goodbye now is
5: over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap.
7: It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on The Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God, it's
0: This week, we ask, have pickleballers gone too far? And what Vancouver landmark will our wrap panelists admit to not visiting? Joining us today is our regular wrap panel. Leah Halib is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster as well. Welcome, ladies.
4: Hi, guys.
0: Howdy doody. Well, let's focus on poor Regnich Dovin of Chilliwack. The Fraser Valley academic says he suffers from anxiety, sleeplessness, auditory hallucinations, and heart flutter. And what does he blame? Pickleball. He says (laughs) this Sunday... He and his wife are staging a hunger strike that will continue until the city of Chilliwack decommissions the courts near his home. Uh, now, he says that these courts were installed without consulting neighbours and were constructed uh, without any noise studies. Of course, he's talking about pickleball courts. Now, mostly in other communities, in Sanage the noise abatement threshold is 500 feet uh, in Port uh, Moody, it's three hundred feet, fifty feet, and he says it's impacted his life dramatically every single day. Take a listen to his comments today, to our Jill Bennett earlier uh, today. It's like uh, you are living next to a shooting range, and you are subjected <laughs> to gunfire every day, eleven hours a day, consistently. It's torturous, and these courts are barely ten meters from my house. Uh, whereas the expected norms followed everywhere in B.C. and North America are that the court should be about 100 meters from your house. We are not against the sport of pickleball, and nor are we against the use of this space for recreational purposes. This wasn't supposed to be there, but now that it is there,
4: it's causing all that problem.
0: Now, just so you have a auditory picture, uh, Leo, let's play some pickleball sound <laughs> just to remind people what <laughs> yeah. they're living with every day. So imagine uh, getting up in the morning, maybe that is your alarm clock, I don't know, and hearing that all day, every day. And as he says, (laughs) just meters from his house, not 500 feet, meters. So Leah, let me go to you first. Should the city of Chilliwack admit their mistake and just shut that pickleball court down?
7: Well, I mean, didn't the neighbors go on to say they prefer death over continuing to live the life of second class (laughs) citizens? Like death. I mean that's extreme. I would they would rather die than listen to pickleball <laughs> for me. Wouldn't you move then? Just move, right? Like Who's I would rather place, live. Though? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Hold on. Who's gonna buy your place? It's actually the yeah. owners. This is devaluating the value of their property that's true, true. are they pickleballing so till the midnight Right there my friends the lawyer to the rescue <laughs> 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 like are they pickleballing till midnight like, like no, when eight, are they shutting me down
0: 8 o'clock but yeah, they get see, there in the morning fine. all day
7: sunny oh, oh out give me a summer. break okay I'm gonna go and play the tuba outside your window for 11 hours straight and see <laughs> hey, how you enjoy I have somebody that. that and please please clarinet. right to make noise <laughs>
0: Like, could you imagine? Like, even if you leave your home, it's just probably going to be playing in the background in your head. You know, <laughs> it's, Sarah, what do you think? I mean, should, do you think they got a
7: case? I think they've got a case. I think that they can, like, for basically turn that crap off. Look, Lord, stop it. We know who wouldn't See, take that. See, you, you, you didn't last. You didn't last thirty <laughs> seconds. You did. Oh, <laughs> no. and you guys get know off my me. Lawn. Like, I, that's what I I in. have like literally no patience. I would come out, and it would be God <laughs> help everybody. But no, that's that's <laughs> completely obnoxious. I mean, there's uh, people get upset about tennis courts. So pickleball is a lot noisier. Hey, they put pickleball courts in Crescent Park down where I live, and the, uh, you know it's far enough away from all the houses, but. They didn't consult anybody either. And it's all around the owl and eagle nests, right? So, I mean, it's like, oh, we're not bothering anybody except nature and nesting birds. Like, you know, it, pickleball can't, there's the pickleball industry needs to find a, a less noisy bat and ball combination. That, that would be probably. If they're doing themselves favors, I've heard that they're thinking about using like uh, conver- like converting space in office buildings and making pickleball courts. But yeah, this guy, I mean, honestly, he could sue the city for like lack of being able to use and enjoyment, and also uh, based on the fact that this is devaluating the value of his property. Yeah. To buy next the pickleball court, but he'd prefer death. He'd prefer death. Like that's. Hey, pretty if strange. you've had that, it's uh, you know <laughs> honestly, it would be like it would be like literally being waterboarded sound wise <laughs> on all day. <laughs> Because that's
8: what, I mean, you
7: you get to a point where you're probably just so stressed out that you're literally in tears. I totally sympathize (laughs) with Guy. Yeah. I'm more than willing to come out and yell at the city of Chilliwack.
0: Yeah, he, he, he goes <laughs> further. The Rich Neach is a professor at the University of the Fraser Valley. He says he does a lot of work, grading papers, exams, all that kind of stuff, preparing lectures at home, and that the noise has forced him to cancel classes and even leave the wow. country for India. And he, so he's developed wow. symptoms of sleeplessness and, and anxiety. So this is like, as he said, it's only a few feet away and not like other communities. <laughs> Turn where they that
7: actually... off. Turn that <laughs> off. It's in your head. Oh, hand- it's, it's in your head night <laughs> You know, like it's not midnight. You know, I don't know. I do Okay, know. I think you know what? Extreme. I am, I am seriously okay. I'm going to put your address on the internet, and I'm going to get everybody <laughs> to play don't. a round of pickleball in front of your house, all <laughs> uh, like starting and because because of this time of year, they start at six o'clock in the morning and they go until slightly after Sunday. Like yeah. you know, when it gets as long as you. I have wine. I, obnoxious. I'm Spring actually, I,
0: I'm pretty patient, but I would agree in this case because it's so close to his house and hearing that. All day, especially on weekends. Every day, <laughs> I would just lose kids it. Or something oh, jeez, like yeah, young kids, no. especially. Oh my God. Or all if, right. you're yeah, yeah, exactly.
7: if you're prone to migraines, yeah, exactly. you don't
0: need that. You don't need. That. Where all are right.
7: they going <laughs> to build these pickleball courts now in the middle of nowhere? That's oh what well, I don't know. Put them indoors. Bunkers I'm in indoors,
0: indoors somewhere. There indoors. you go. All right, coming it's up next. Lots
7: downtown. Nobody's going there anymore. All right.
0: <laughs> We are speaking to our Friday rap panel, Leah Halive and Sarah Daniels are joining us. Now, earlier this week, we had a segment with our producer, Ryan Lee Hall. Ryan, one day in the middle of the office, told us that he had never been to Stanley Park. He's born and raised here in Metro Vancouver. He lives (laughs) in Surrey. And uh, and we asked him, he just says, I didn't feel a need to go. There's parks everywhere. It's just (laughs) another park, he says. So we made him tour the park with uh, our producer, Stephen Chang. Here's part of his reaction. (laughs) I'm born and raised in Surrey, so I've never been to Stanley Park. That's, my excuse.
9: That's my excuse. It's my excuse. It is kind of far, you know. Do you think it's beautiful? Um, you know, it, it looks exactly like, like the photos and like the videos and stuff. I'm being serious here, man. This is my first time being here. Now I'm actually seeing everything. Uh, I feel official now. Like I'm an official Vancouverite, right? We've only been to like a portion of yeah, this whole park. So far, I'm getting the same vibe. A park, a park. A, a park's a park, Ryan. That, that's your response. That's yeah. A park's apart. park. You know, now that I've been here
10: once, I think maybe I will come back here one day. But again, I'm not I'm not like, like super like wowed yet, Steven. You know, you've been to one park. So I still kind of feel like you've been to them all.
9: I'm being serious, too. I'm not even like joking. <laughs> like I'm being serious. This is dead serious. This is an actual reaction
0: right now. Let's just say Ryan was underwhelmed, wow. underwhelmed by Stanley Park. Now, so we got to talking, That's, you know, we've we got all these great places to visit, but we always assume everybody's been everywhere. So we just went around in an office, asked some of our colleagues, uh, what Vancouver landmark have you not visited? Just in our office, take a listen to this. What's a high profile spot in Vancouver that you've never been to, that many people have?
10: You know, I've never actually stepped foot inside the Vancouver Art Gallery. I work across the street from it. I see it every day. I could not tell you what the inside of that building looks like. It's a sad, sad moment for me.
7: I've never been to the White Rock Pier. I've been to the beaches out there. It's beautiful. I've never properly done the White Rock Pier.
9: Van Dusen Gardens. Don't even know where it is.
8: I didn't go to the Peony. I'd like to. So I'm just waiting to make some friends (laughs) to go with them.
0: I've actually never been to Whistler. Sorry. So there you go. None wow. of us get out much, I guess. I like to think as a reporter, I'd been out and about, but I. But it's, But you know, it's led to a lot of confessions from folks here at the office <laughs> where they haven't visited. Van Dusengard, don't know where that is, don't care. I love that. Don't
7: even know where it is. I can't.
0: Believe that. I know. <laughs> uh, we thought it was just Ryan, and he's a bit stoic, oh, and and yeah. uh, it was a hermit wow. lakes living at home, but turns out he started a movement here. Everybody's confessing at the office. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me start with you. Is there any Vancouver landmark that you haven't visited?
7: Okay, so I drive by this all the time when I go to Whistler. I've flown over it in the chopper, the Britannia Mine Museum. I've always wanted to go in there. I've seen it from the air. I've flown down close to it. I've driven past it all my life, and I've never gone in. I keep promising myself I'm going to go. It's not even that far, but (laughs) it's just like you go past it because you're going somewhere, right? Yes. One day.
0: There you go. That's a good one. That's a good one because you drive by there. (laughs) What about you, Sarah?
7: Gross grind. You are. Why would I drive so far? I've never been to up the gross grind. Why would I do that? I'll take an elevator when they put one in. It's nice an elevator. No, no, we'll get you an escalator. Okay, we'll put on the ground for you. Gross grind. No,
0: no, no. I'm I'm the same. I've done the gross grind either. My wife uh, went up there with some friends, and I just said, you know, I'm going to sleep in. You guys go
7: ahead. I've just I've
0: never bothered to get around (laughs) to it. And just at this age, I'm like, you know, why bother now?
7: (laughs) (laughs) What about you? What else? I'll ride the tram. Just it, yeah. everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, on the exactly. Other side. But the gross Wham- grind for me, for sure. But the, but there's, you know, Chris Kalis was on the other day. He also admitted he hasn't done the gross grind either. You know he gets I'm asked I'm the- I know he's a fitness what? guy too. He yes. hasn't On the cross.
7: What? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm not a fitness person, so that's my default. Right. there.
0: Oh, <laughs> <No>. I like <laughs> I liked our uh, producer Tim when he goes. Well, I forget Vancouver. I've never been to Whistler. <laughs> that
4: yeah, that's like, a
7: shocker too. How can you live here and not go to Whistler?
0: I know. I well, just
7: find it weird that a producer uh, at CKNW, and for those that don't know, the offices are at 700 West Georgia. Corner Georgia Granville the Stanley Park is like literally down right the road down how the could street. you have not gone to Stanley Park <laughs> I know. it's right there. It is. We like, checked.
0: We checked. It's 1.7 kilometers yeah, away. And Ryan, at nighttime, just, it's beautiful I, seeing forward, the
7: city, right? I know.
0: Right? And guess what? Ryan is now also admitting that he hasn't been to other places like Capilano Suspension Bridge <laughs> and a few other places. So we're going to have him... I haven't done that either. I've I, been there. I, like I've,
7: I've done it many times. So
0: we're we are actually going to have him go to a few other landmarks that he hasn't visited. There. Oh, exactly. And so I think <laughs> I this is going to be a regular like, summer uh, segment for us almost it's weekly. Really? Where has yeah. Ryan not been? So
7: Where's I could not, do that? not. I, I don't. The Capilano it. Suspension Bridge. I couldn't do. Because even though it's I used cool. to fly around, the plane, I plane I, 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 a, a, I get vertigo for those kind of things. So there's just no. Oh, way okay. I, yeah. yeah. Then you I won't want to do like, that. That, that. Right that is <laughs> true.
4: Well,
0: ladies, thank you so much. Always great to chat. Have yourself a wonderful weekend.
7: Everybody off to too. Stanley Park. <laughs> With yeah, your pickleball. Exactly. Pickleball, that's right. Let's <laughs> that's play that
0: pickleball soundtrack one more time, just for poor Rich Oh, my niche. God. Ladies, i coming uh,
7: through the phone lines to turn that yeah, off. There you go. Awesome. Leah,
0: th- thank you, Leah Thera. Thank you, Sarah. That's Leah Alive, TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent, in so sorry, author and broadcaster. They, of course, are our Friday wrap.